Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, but you can call me Froley. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner. Pull my finger. <laughs> this is Space the Nation, where we talk about politics and science fiction, but also just science fiction. Up next is Naomi Alderman's The Power, and then we are doing the Fantasy Island pilot. And I think we have officially run up against the end of our schedule, at least firm that we know that <laughs> seems mostly correct but i mean we, we we have plenty of ideas in the hopper but like we haven't quite scheduled them yet would be the way to put yes it. we need to schedule out the summer um but yeah. we will come back with with a more firm schedule uh, you can also make suggestions at the patreon page and you know what else you can do on our patreon page what else Anna? you can become a patron Uh, You would go to patreon.com slash space the nation. And there are ways to support us from $3 a month to like something really crazy that a few people have actually done. Which we are very grateful for. Which we are very grateful for. And in fact, now we have uh, over 100 patrons. And what does that mean, Dan? It means we will be recording our patron-only episode very, very soon. And we left it up to the patrons to decide. And so we will be recording the podcast on 28 days later. We look forward to that. There are other benefits of patronage, by the way. There is our Discord channel. There are Discord watch parties. There is also a monthly AMA we do. Uh, The next one is coming up on June 5th, Saturday at 11.30 a.m. Eastern, 10.30 a.m. Central. And I think once we perhaps get to 250 patrons, we will have yet another special episode chosen again by the patrons. Yes, hence the whole patron-only thing. Although I guess that's not obvious that they would choose it. So that's actually, it's like a double bonus. It's a patron-only episode that only they get to hear, and they get to pick what we're going to talk about. The subject of today's podcast is the 2006 Alfred Cuaron film, Children of Men. And Dan, I think this is actually something that you suggested. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Because I thought everyone was feeling too good about things. Uh Of course, that's why we chose uh, Kindred as well. Yes, so exactly. We're really so we're really continuing that theme. No, I. So <laughs> I think I chose it for two reasons. Um, the first is is that this falls into a particular category of films that I define as perfect but painful, and I really think this is the sort of exemplar of that genre. In many ways, I really think this is an outstanding film. It's as good, in my opinion, as Alien is in terms of how it sort of sets up the world, the sort of, the way it's structured, the way it's filmed, the acting, all of that. And yet, the difference is, is that if I stumble across Alien or if someone says, hey, do you want to watch Alien? I'm like, yeah, I'm there. Whereas I don't think I have watched this film in at least a decade. I knew it was really good and watching it again, it was really good, but it's much more difficult to watch. And I think weirdly, it can't be as beloved because in some ways the realism of this film violates genre or it violates one of the benefits of genre, which is to say one of the advantages and one of the reasons Anna and I talk about uh, sci-fi and poli-sci is that the benefits of the sci-fi genre is that it allows you to talk about political issues without making it in your face, without talking about the current day. And so Genuinely, one of the benefits of using genre is that it allows the viewer to slightly abstract from their current day situation and therefore talk about something, but also know, oh, it's not really how things are going. So we can, you know, talk about it in a little better way. Yeah, getting some distance from an issue can change your point of view on it. That's the reason why we love this genre, really. Right. And detachment is important. And 
that is not how Children of Men works as a film. <laughs> and what's worse is in the 15 years since it's come out, it's actually become more realistic. That's the thing that I find mm. astonishing. You know, it was incredibly vivid when it was released, but 15 years later, it is so freaking prescient. It, there are mentions of pandemics, refugees, backlash to refugees. There's fake news. There's infertility. No detachment is possible watching this film. It's essentially, you know, particularly if you think about the UK, which is where the film is set, it, it's incredibly in your face. And it's particularly true because this is a film that is essentially about demographic decline. At least that's the sort of MacGuffin that drives everything. And it seems fitting because we've actually gotten a lot of data over the last month or two as sort of 2020 censuses have come in, not just from the United States, but from across the rest of the world. And the truth is, is that most of the great powers are having a lot fewer babies than they used to. Now, there are ways in which I would argue this is somewhat healthy. Like, you know, there were concerns 20, 30, 50 years ago about a population bomb that, that you know, the population would overwhelm and despoil the earth. But now the fears are, are reversed, that essentially you are seeing the graying of the globe. In some countries like Japan, for example, the estimated population of what Japan will be in 2100 is roughly half of what it was in 2000, mm -hmm. which is kind of astonishing. I appreciate you saying that demographic decline is the MacGuffin of the film, but I'm just going to say really baldly, I mean, fertility is the subject of this film mm. Mm -hmm. more than mm -hmm. demographic decline. It's it's about life. Uh, that was the IR person in me. Life. You're right. Yes, that's yes. fair. I mean, yeah. I just want to be I'm sorry. Like, no, no, no. upfront about like the less IRE. Yes. No, no. Sorry. That was, that was the IR person. This is why we work well on it. Like, you know, I just, I say the IR way and you say, you mean it's about life, Dan, right? You it's know, about yeah. life, Dan. And yeah, this was a tough one. Uh, I, behind the scenes peak here, I actually finished it a couple hours before this recording because I was having trouble watching it. Not because it's a bad movie. No, it's and, a great movie. And it's a testament to sort of the power of this film that even Clive Owen and Julianne Moore cannot make it enjoyable. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're, they're the two of the most beautiful people, you know, on earth and also two of the most um, gifted actors. I mean, it is, I, it is hard to describe a film that is compelling, but not enjoyable is not the right word, right? I mean, like... <laughs> Vivid is the is what I keep coming back to, but like, yeah. but like the other thing is I want to stress this is not a, like there are a lot of movies that are released at the end of the year that are clearly like designed for Oscar bait, mm -hmm. where it's like this is about an important subject and you will feel moved yeah. at the end of it. And so it's, this is not that. I mean, it is an Oscar worthy. Oh, and film. it goes off at a quick clip. Like yeah. it's a if it weren't for the incredibly realistic heaviness of it, mm -hmm. the themes and what it says about human nature, which is not. Not good. All good, let's say. <laughs> Some good, but mostly not good. Yes. It, it is. It would. You put this um, movie together with a somehow a different storyline, it would be a blockbuster. But there is no, no population, no situation, no culture, currently on this earth, in which this would be a blockbuster. Like <laughs> yes. You cannot. You cannot make that happen. True. You mentioned, I believe, that it was based on the P. D. James. Yes. Yeah, so uh, let's go to the story behind the story. Uh, the Children of Men was originally a 1992 novel by P.D. James with a similar basic premise of no more children. Uh, but otherwise, the plot is 
pretty different from what we see in the film. Also, one interesting switch, which is in the book, the reason there are no more children is because men are infertile, whereas in the movie, it's women. So I will leave that to Anna to, to figure out what that means. But uh, nonetheless, Mexican director Alfonso Cuaron apparently saw a treatment, uh, found the underlying premise intriguing. 9-11 apparently fir- further affected his thinking. He was stuck in the Toronto Film Festival for four days after the 9-11 attacks because he was promoting uh, Itumama Tambien. Uh, I began thinking of essentially about what the new century would mean, and so he really got intrigued by the premise. So he co-wrote a screenplay with Tim Sexton. Then he went to London to shoot Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, in which he apparently noticed uh, the sort of seamier sides of London, and there are many seamy sides of London, and began to think about how to shoot the film, essentially how to shoot something 20, 30 years into the future. Quaron apparently had to nix, like, most of his art department's sort of efforts to make it, like, a little more futuristic. Instead, he sort of envisioned uh, 2027 London as war-torn and sort of refugee-overloaded akin uh, to what you'd seen in the Balkans in the 1990s. And his cinematographer, uh, Emmanuel Lubezki, also contributed ideas, particularly the use of a lot of wide shots to capture about as much information uh, about the environment as possible, and that's incredibly effectively done. As Anna said, it would be safe to say that Universal Pictures never really got the film. And you know what? I actually can't blame Universal Pictures for not getting the film because, as Anna said, this is never, there is no universe in which a well-done version of this film is a blockbuster. Quaron has told interviewers that the head of Universal at the time, Stacey Snyder, uh, told him, quote, I don't understand this film. I have no idea what you want to do, but go ahead and do it. And you know what? Props to any executive who hey, actually you know what? tells Quaron that. That's what you get for directing a Harry Potter movie. <laughs> for directing the best yeah. Harry Potter movie. I mean, let's not forget yes. that. Yes. You know. And man, he works with amazing actors. I'm just like yeah. thinking through like the people he's worked with and wow. Yeah. yeah. No, no, he's, he's it, it's, yeah, it's intense. Quaron has also acknowledged that it was a difficult production. He had to deal with Universal a lot. And it, it seems to have left a lasting effect because there is a seven-year gap between when Children of Men was released and Quaron's next film, which was Gravity, was released in 2013. Apparently, Banksy was supposed to be involved and maybe was involved. <laughs> it's a little unclear because Quaron said he actually, he actually told an interviewer that he was going to meet with Banksy, except, of course, you can't meet with Banksy. Instead, Banksy's manager said, it up where he was apparently in a cafe and then Banksy sat behind him and asked him questions. But he wasn't involved except there apparently is a Banksy piece of art in the film. Oh yeah, it's, it's in the um, arc of the arts. You're right, the it's arc of the of, arts. It's, exactly. it's as they enter. It's yeah. actually... Yes, it's when he gets out of the car. It's when he, yeah. yeah. Needless to say, Universal had no freaking idea how to market the film and commercially it flopped. Critically, I don't think it flopped at all. Critically, I think it was pretty widely praised. And as time has passed, uh, it would be safe to say the movie has uh, appreciated in value. Yeah, I I mean, I'm just trying to think what kind of tagline you'd use with this one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Get Not ready to be bummed out. Yes. <laughs> Has a happy ending. <laughs> sort of. Shrugging shoulders. Yes. <laughs> um, the only way, truly the only way you could do this is like, hey, remember Prisoner of Azkaban? This guy yeah. made another movie. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> you liked Prisoner of Azkaban? This is also a movie <laughs> by this guy. <laughs> and also, what parts did you like of Prisoner of Azkaban? Did you like the dark, grimy parts? Okay, you're in luck. Did you like the washed out cinematography? Because man, wait till you watch this film. And I, I think we'll probably talk more about the cinematography and the art direction. Yeah, yeah. And I will say, one of the benefits of, of watching it again 
was being able to notice a lot more of of what they were doing in the background. Yeah. There is a lot going on. Yes. And in fact, and it does feel kind of busy in the back. It's not... There is one scene that has a streamlined aesthetic, or two. There are two scenes with streamlined aesthetics, and maybe we should... Let's bookmark this maybe to talk about later, because yeah. the two scenes are the arc of the arts, mm-hmm. and then when he talks to Julianne Moore. Yeah. Those are the only two scenes in which you have a kind of clarity. Mm, that's true. About, Although even like, in the arc of the arts, there's like stuff going on in the background. It's, but it, it's it's relatively clean, though. It's like yeah, a, it's yeah. literally clean. Yeah, that's right. That's correct. It is and, the clean. It, it, that is literally the cleanest set in the entire film. That's that's right. Correct. Yeah. And the place where he talks to Julianne Moore is also weirdly clean. Yeah. One of the things I kind of so it has to be intentional. And again, maybe we'll talk about that later. Right. It is hard to believe that this is a guy that made a Harry Potter movie, but <laughs> he is a great filmmaker. Yeah. Um. Let us get into the actual movie, Dan. Okay. Let us get into the plot. Act one, which is really just the first three minutes. <laughs> Welcome to 2027, where for 18 plus years, no one has been born. Most of the planet, it would be safe to say, is not coping well with this fact. Great Britain still seems to have some order, although that illusion is punctured in the very first scene. We meet our protagonist, Theo, as he pushes past a crowd watching a news broadcast and mourning the death of the world's youngest person, 18-year-old baby Diego, to grab a cup of coffee. He exits the cafe, walks a few paces, spikes it with some alcohol, and then a bomb explodes in the cafe he just <laughs> left. Immediate cut to title card. Anna, we talked a lot about like showing and not telling in this podcast and how the best films do that with economy. And I have to say, I think the first few minutes of this film are really fucking perfection in terms of establishing both the world building and what we know about the main character. And also, I would stress, it, I think movies about the near future are even harder than movies about the far future because the near future has to bear some resemblance to where we are now. And it's, it's you know, occasionally like it's not done well. It's done really well here, in my opinion. I think it's all the more impressive. Uh, it's capturing of the near future that it's almost 20 years old now. Right. And it still feels like it could be the near future. It feels like it could be seven years from now or six, God, yeah. six years from now. Or, or 20. Yeah. Yeah, you know, right. it, it feels like the near future. Mm-hmm. My one gripe is that there are lots of like on paper newspapers, apparently. Like, <laughs> I'm enough of a paper Somehow, person so that I still. like that. I, I'm not complaining about that. I want there no, to be I'm not paper complaining. Oh, 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 Dan, Dan, Dan. Yes. Okay. My gripe is not with the existence of newspapers, which fair I cherish. Yes. It's with as a person who works in. <laughs> yes. Okay. That's works. fair. In mini media, but misses print media. Yeah. Um, I just was like, oh wow, somehow they're they're still printing things. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you know. That's fair. I do think that this is the beginning of them trying to make Clive Owen look bad. They <laughs> do not succeed at any point. Uh, but it's they give it a good try. And then the old whiskey and the coffee thing. Which right. Is I was going to ask you about this later. Yes. It's a tried and true trope in in film. And I, it makes me almost kind of roll my eyes. But then when it turns out that that's what saves his life, eh, <laughs> you know, that's a that's a that's a cool twist yes. on it. I think. And yeah, I mean, he's definitely an alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, <laughs> no, like that's not a universal again, sign of an alcoholic—the whole drinking in the morning thing. Yeah. But. Mm, 
It's in the top 10. <laughs> right. I, I, this is one of these interesting questions of when economy becomes cliche, as it were. Because, yeah. again, you're right. It is a cliche. But on the other hand, you see it and, like, okay, like, you immediately update your prior about what this guy is and you know that he's an alcoholic. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's done incredibly effectively. All right. All right. Let's move Act on two. to the fishes and the fugies. We learn that back in the day, Theo was a married political activist with a small child and is now a divorced, burned-out, alcoholic, low-level civil servant for the Ministry of Energy. Great Britain is... Ha-ha, uh-huh, co- by the way. Like, I think that's funny. Yes. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Great Britain is coping with an influx of fugies, uh, which is short for undocumented refugees. They are also coping with the Fishies, which is a pro-fugie, quasi-terrorist, Antifa-like group fighting the government. Theo's ex-wife, Julian, played by Julian more uh, leads the fishies the group abducts theo and basically asks him to use his family connections to acquire transit papers which you now need in fascist britain to get a fugee to the coast and they'll pay theo does need the money and still has feelings for julian so procures papers for two people from his cousin when he goes to visit the cousin in the arc of the arts theo julian julian's second in command luke played by chewitel Ejiofor. Miriam and a black fugie named uh, Key all get in the car for their first leg of the trip. Some brief hijinks ensue. However, as they proceed, they are ambushed by a gang that shoots Julian dead. They barely escape, are then stopped by the police, at which point Luke kills both coppers. This entire action sequence is essentially shot in one seamless take, and it is fucking amazing. Anna, it is not easy to talk about action sequences in a podcast. I, I grant you that. Like, really, just watch the goddamn movie. But the way Quaron shoots them gives them an immediacy that is impossible to ignore. And, like, it, it's... I guess the way I would put it is, like, it's simultaneously a one-shot thing. But as you're watching it, you're not thinking, oh, my God, this is a one-shot single take. I would say this is, again, sort of where watching it a second time, even, you know, separated by 15 years, winds up you know, getting you deeper into the movie in part, because I remember the first time I saw this, mm-hmm. that change of tone between the hijinks in the car, mm-hmm. which is he and Julian Moore do this like thing with a ping pong ball, which right, sounds yeah. actually very gross when I say it just like that. But um, <laughs> <laughs> they like, they pop it. They, I, there's no way to describe it without making it sound obscene. They pop it in each other's mouths. I mean, they are swapping spit, Anna. You know, like it's they it, are. It, it, so it's, yeah. it's this funny scene. It's sort yeah. of they're 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 bantering, and then it is literally oh the lightest. She gets mo- fucking shot. Right. Like, no, it's it, just <laughs> you go from literally the lightest moment in the film. That is easily the like the yep. lightest moment in the film to suddenly oh, it's that movie, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, it, it just it, it gives you a heart attack. It, like it gave me a heart attack back right. back then. I knew it was coming this time, so it wasn't wasn't quite as. Uh, I mean, the the analogy I would make in some ways it's kind impactful. of like right. It's like Psycho in some ways and that like janet lee is like one of the protagonists in the film and then like she's killed a third of the way through and so it's a a legitimately shocking death also and you realize that the rules are not necessarily going to apply to this film and i would also say in terms of noticing things on the second time around because it's such a good movie you don't notice some of the smaller things the first time around the handheld camera is not used the entire time Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And also these long tracking shots are not done the entire time. Right. And they're, they're used uh, judiciously, let's say. Yeah. Like, and it's really effective. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how else to put it. Like, he, he makes good choices when it comes to that. The tracking thing does happen more, I think, as the movie goes on because they're on a journey. Yeah. Like they're, I, I think there are four long tracking shots in the film. There's, yeah. there's this one. There's, you know, there's the escape from the farm. And then there's 
the birth and then i think the the longest one is the yeah the one in the the yeah. refugee camp yeah you didn't mention michael Caine yet which <laughs> i know you will do but <laughs> i've got to cut things out of the few plot. again yes. yes one of the few kind of bright spots true for at least for a little while in the movie so fun thought, fact, um, Michael. So Michael Caine plays Jasper, who is one of uh, uh, Theo's friends. Apparently, Michael Caine, when when Quaron asked him to play it, suggested basically that, and Michael Caine knew John Lennon and basically played him as a like sixty five year old John Lennon, right down oh. to the hair, even yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's that's kind of sweet. Yeah. I did kind of like the arc of the art scene, although in such an economical movie. I think that scene sort of begs you to ask why it's there hmm. because it lasts maybe longer than you really need a scene where he asks for papers to last. There's a whole kind of lead up to it and then yeah. it happens and there's all this kind of like business. I think it's part about showing that class still exists in this world, you know, this great disparity in income. And I think it's almost like it's a commentary on excess. Like to have this in the movie is a commentary on excess. And I, I thought that it was very droll the mm-hmm. way they mentioned they could not save the Pieta. <laughs> well, it's droll and also it foreshadows. Um, yes, that's what I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you already know it's droll when yeah, because yeah. of the situation. Right. But then, yes, it turns out I, to be. I thought this scene was important because, first of all, you could tell it's important because, among other things, Danny Houston is playing his cousin. It's not a minor, yeah. you know, like they they yeah. they cast it as a significant actor. But the the thing I liked about it was literally it's just this tiny little scene at the end of it where where Theo asks him, "How can you like go on mm-hmm. like this?" And he just says, "I don't think about it." And I think that was in some ways, it was sort of the deadening of, like, that the only way you can go on in this kind of society, apparently, is just to deaden that sense of dread, which is a horrific yeah. thought when you dwell well, on it. Well, and I would actually say that, maybe we talk about this more later, I don't know, yeah. um, that it sort of says something about the insulation that yeah. uh, privilege gives you. That's that fair. That he can afford not to think about it. Mm-hmm. The people that are more on Theo's level and people like he, like, they have to think about it. There's no escaping it. So. Well, they have to think about survival, I guess. So, yeah, that's that's fair. Let me put this way. What was interesting is that how, like, that macro thing he doesn't care about. But, like, okay, and I, you were going to talk about his son. I wasn't sure that was his son. I thought it might have been his lover. I wasn't entirely oh, sure on that. interesting. Interesting. It wasn't clear I, I, to me. I, I, it's a younger person. Yes. assumes older than, you know, 18. Right. The only thing I would say is, like, it's a funny sort of kids these days scene, yeah. right? Because he's, like, on his, what passes for a phone, right. I suppose. <laughs> and, you know, uh, taking meds. Yeah. Like, like, like kids. Like kids do. Mm-hmm. All right. Enough of this, except I, I want to say again that Michael Caine, I mean, he is never a bad thing. And it's... <laughs> Yes. It is just delightful to see him come in and completely change the tone of the movie, completely kind of change Theo. Yeah. You get you get a little bit of more depth to Theo. Also. And Theo warms up. Like, Theo is actually, like, yeah. I mean, and it's true. You like him a little bit more because he's been, like, a fucking downer, yeah. you know, loser. No, and, and as you say, like, this is, uh, there are points in this movie where it's grim, but it's not like Zack Snyder grimdark. It's just there are. <laughs> there are there are grim themes in this movie, and whenever Michael Caine is in the movie, like it, there it lightens up, and you need that in order to be able to watch it. That's yeah, fair. Yeah. Act three: lots of escapes. So, fleeing from the police, Luke 
takes everyone to a hideaway farm. Uh, there, Key shows Luke the reason why she needs to get to the coast. She is pregnant, which safely qualifies as a game changer in this universe. The fishies, uh, because Julian has been killed, vote Luke as their leader. Theo wants them to go public with Key's pregnancy, arguing that that will, you know, change things. Change everything. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The fishies respond by saying, you naive fool, the government would never admit that a fugi was the first person to give a live birth. Key decides that uh, she will have the baby at the farm, and that would be how the movie would end, except that Theo overhears a conversation in which Luke acknowledges that he organized the ambush that killed Julian, that they plan to keep the baby as a political symbol, and oh, they are going to off Theo the very next morning. Uh, armed with that information, Theo wakes Key and Miriam and they escape. Again, in a single tracking shot that is really fucking amazing. Uh, agree, Donna? Oh, I completely agree. I w- will say here something that occurred to me late in the movie, but I thought about just now, which is that Theo is a very lucky man. <laughs> he winds up benefiting from all sorts of weird like accidental kind of like seeing something happen yeah. or like overhearing something <laughs> and, and or like not getting person- killed in minute two of the film yes right not yeah. getting killed yeah right you know he's just extremely yeah. and, and now saying that the speaking of minute two of the film i wonder if it's sort of sort of intentional mm-hmm. because he I'll talk, I mentioned this later, but I'm going to say it now, which is one of the things that's lucky about him. And I don't know if you noticed this, Dan, but in the last part, you know, in this climactic battle scene, Mm -hmm. he keeps benefiting from people getting shot by like a third party. Yes. No, I noticed that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like there are multiple times where someone would like, if they were just a little more like, and and this is... this is, might be the one thing that this film shares with ordinary action films, which is, you know, there are times where, like, our hero is captured and, like, the order is, okay, shoot him, but don't shoot him here. Shoot him around the corner. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. Which gives him the 10 seconds Or necessary. shoot that other person first. Don't right, shoot exactly. Shoot the hero. Shoot yeah. that other person. Right. And yeah. then, like, that that's, gives just enough time for some other event to happen that allows the hero to escape. So, yes, in that sense, it, it is similar. I will also note that this is sort of when, in the film, you start to get a feel for the importance of animals. Mm-hmm. It's a much bigger theme in the novel, which I read a long time ago, but because I'm a pet mom, I remembered <laughs> this, um, that in the novel, it's actually really underscored that people really come to fetishize having like dogs and cats. Right. Like, like if, they treat them like children. Yes. Yeah, so I think in the novel, like, so if my memory serves, like pets are actually put in prams yeah. or strollers, yeah. or there, you could also put dolls in strollers. But like the idea of like the ritual of having a baby is like highly like, you know, socially constructed in the novel if memory serves right and and you start to notice i think around here that Mm -hmm. lots of people have pets yeah (laughs) and they're very like much part of like the situation wherever they are like you first i think notice that in jasper's house he has a very cute dog and also a cat and there's a lot of attention paid in the frame to these animals kind of turning up and there's um, also wild animals like there's there's a scene that's yeah. about that it, we don't talk about in the plot but where they're in the school this sort of abandoned school and, and Theo is looking for Key and suddenly there's like a deer that walks by basically yeah. which I, I it was that's sort of a nice symbolism of like yeah this is no longer part of human world and animals are going to come back yep yeah. alright 
All right, yeah. so Theo, Key, and Miriam take refuge uh, in the house of Theo's friend Jasper, played by Michael Caine. Miriam explains that they need to get to the coast to connect with a boat from The Human Project, which is allegedly a group of the world's best minds uh, that Theo had rubbished in an earlier conversation with Jasper. They decide to go to Bexhill, uh, which is a refugee camp. Jasper suggests that they break into the refugee camp there through his uh, connections. The fishies come to Jasper's place, obviously looking out trying to find Key. Jasper sends Theo, Miriam, and Key on their way and buys time for them with his life. Theo, Miriam, and Key meet up with Sid, Jasper's weed buyer and guard at the Fuji camp. Uh, he sneaks them in. As they are riding a bus to the main processing center, Key goes into labor and then her water breaks. Miriam covers for her with one of the guards and is then taken away and we don't see Miriam ever again. Key and Theo meet up with their contact Marichka in the refugee camp. She takes them to a uh, apartment where they can set up. And Key then delivers her baby. It's a girl. Yay. Anna, this is a movie that contains addiction within it. So we've talked about this before on this podcast. I thought it was a nice touch when Theo uses the alcohol that he would normally drink to sterilize his hands to help with the delivery. It's not terribly showy, but it, and I, I grant you it's sort of on the nose, but I actually thought it was effective. I was curious what you thought. As a fellow alcoholic, what I really loved was his clear moment of indecision about it. (laughs) (laughs) There is a beat where you see him kind of look at it and like you can see like him like a good alcoholic kind of kind of play through like, well, if I use this on my hands, I'm not going to be able to drink it. (laughs) But he does it anyway, right? Yeah. I was also going to say that this is now a Mariska Stan podcast. It's amazing. Speaking of like people who keep saving Theo, yes, that's right. She is amazing. Yes. She has no lines of English, mm-hmm. but is an amazing character. Uh, her dog, Santo, also a star mm-hmm. to me in the film. And this is, the, yeah, everything happens real fast in this section. Yes. This is- <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things happen. No, this is a quickly paced film. Like again, like yeah. for, for such a for such a dour movie. Like again, like this does. There are not a lot of slow moments, particularly in the second half of the film. Yeah. Um, it goes right. along quickly. Let's wrap it up. All right, let's get to the grand finale. The next morning, uh, Sid shows up again, claiming that he will get them to a boat that will rendezvous with the Human Project. Oh no, it's a trap! Hey, and who tells them that? Marishka. Marishka. Yes. Marishka is like, <laughs> there we go. It turns out Sid had watched the news and realizes that both the fishies and the fascists very much want Theo and Key. While Sid is third-person monologuing all this, Marichka once again attacks him, and they all manage to escape, knocking Sid unconscious. At their rendezvous time, they try to make their way uh, to a boat, but all hell breaks loose in the refugee camp. Essentially, the fishies have breached the perimeter. The fascists are responding with force. I could describe what's going on, but really that would not do it justice. I, again, am going to stress you really should watch the film if you haven't seen it before. Just visually, it's stunning. Key, her baby, and Theo uh, try to make their way across the battle lines, but are captured by Luke and his crew, who again have breached the perimeter. They take Key and the baby away and are going to kill Theo, but the Theo escapes before he is executed, finds Key in an apartment complex, and spirits her and the baby away, but not before Luke shoots him. The crying baby causes everyone who is shooting at everyone else to temporarily stop killing each other for a hot minute because they are legitimately shocked that there is a baby in their midst. Theo and Kim meet up again with Marichka, who puts them on a rowboat, uh, and they sail into the sea with 
like a scene that looks like a William Turner painting is so goddamn mm-hmm. beautiful. They arrive at the designated buoy and Key tells Theo that she will name the baby Dylan after Theo's dead son, which is much better than the really crap name she had come up prior to that. <laughs> First there was Froley, and then there was Bazooka. Bazooka, yes. I'm sorry. I know we're not supposed to judge these things, but Key had awful taste in names. It has to be said. Okay? Dylan is much better. All right. Theo dies, and a few moments later, the human project ship The Tomorrow arrives to rescue Key, fade to black. I hadn't watched this film in a while, for obvious reasons, um, and I forgot the sort of religious, like, Christ-like reaction to Key's baby in that final battle scene. Um, which I found weirdly more uplifting this time. Maybe I'd forgotten about it, but like it was actually the one thing that made me sort of feel good about this film. And also, I would add, it's a fun gender tweak that everyone keeps assuming it's going to be a boy, but it's actually a girl. Yes. So I think the gender sort of tweak with everyone assuming that it's a boy, but it being a girl, I think is related to them changing who's infertile. Because I think Karan really wants to kind of drill down and emphasize the idea of fertility of life of who creates life and having a girl you know when the women are the ones who are infertile like it it is just a it's a much more powerful signifier of of life giving life basically yeah i think and now i I would like you to answer honestly dan okay did you expect this movie to have a happy ending (laughs) (laughs) you mean the first time i watched it or like yeah uh no i did not actually (laughs) I didn't. Um, no, I was. I you know I was. I wouldn't have been surprised if everyone had been dead. But uh, but the movie does. I mean, let me counter with a question to you, which is: Do you think this is a happy ending? Like you know, do you think? I mean, yes, the baby. I'm going to insist that it is. Okay, because that's the alternative is just even more grim. Because <laughs> there is an alternative read, right? That that's not the human project ship. Oh, I didn't think about that. No. The, the, oh. No, oh no, yeah, because no, no. they really intentionally cut. Before they actually meet up. Yeah, but the ship is named the Tomorrow, for Christ's sakes. I mean, that's clearly got to be, like... Yeah, uh, I'm just saying, okay. like, it, it's the movie that it subverts a lot of expectations. And I think he there's an intentional ambiguity. Fair enough. At the end. But all I'm saying is, like, honestly, the, the most heartwarming moment of this film for me is when that soldier, like, sees the baby and then immediately says, cease fire. That is, in my opinion, the true hero of the film because he's the one guy that actually realizes what... Marishka, sorry. Oh, sorry, Marishka, that's like, true. Yes, yeah. fair enough. I mean, he may be runner-up. Yeah, but, okay. But, yeah. like, it was just... Oh, thank God. All right. So Theo actually, in the end, might have been proven correct. That's the only thing. But. I found myself tearing up during that scene, the, mm-hmm. the reimagined Pieta scene, but not when the soldier says ceasefire. Mm-hmm. The part that got to me was before that. When they start walking through the apartment complex. Yes. And the refugees are crying and singing. So... And reaching out to touch her. Right. So it's funny. Like I said, Christ-like, but actually what that reminded me of is a Jewish tradition, which is in if you go to um, synagogue for Shabbat services or for High Holy Day services, one of the, the things that happens is, is that the rabbi or someone else takes the Torah, the five books of Moses, the sort of two massive scrolls, and walks through the congregation in which you then have an opportunity to touch the, the Torah. And that's actually what it reminded me of. It was the same sort of thing of like, I, you know, by touching this, well, I... Well, it's the holiness. Yes, it's, exactly. It's, it, in, in, in both traditions, it's about holiness. Yeah. But Dan, there is religion throughout the film. There is, indeed. Um, you know, the fishies, although I think it is actually fishes, at least that's what my closed captioning said, and it's just the British accent that makes it sound like fishies. Oh. But 
Okay. I also fishies. It has this playfulness to it that you know the film lacks. So yeah. <laughs> also, it rhymes with fugies, so that's good. <laughs> right. Um, but there are also like cults that are referred to throughout the yeah. film. There's a shot briefly of I think I think the group is called the Redeemers, essentially. And it would. Oh, and there's the renouncers. And the renouncers, yes. And it, and it would totally make sense, by the way, that this sort of uh, you know mass infertility event would trigger these sorts of cults emerging. That that entirely makes sense to me. Okay. Um, yeah, I guess it's my turn to talk. (laughs) (laughs) We could just go on. Oh, no, I I did go through the trouble of looking up why the fish is a symbol for Christianity. And now I feel like I need to say that it was used by (laughs) Christians in ancient Rome. Go ahead. As a secret symbol. So there. But I have a really important question. Dan. Anna. Is there IR in this movie? Fuck yeah, there's some IR in this movie, Anna. Okay? All right. In co- after after Kindred, I am glad we can say, yes, no denying there is some IR. Fun fact, this is apparently one of Francis Fukuyama's favorite films. Also, fun fact, I can say Francis Fukuyama's favorite films without muffing it up, and I'm really pleased with that. But yes, he is, he's actually, there's a great- uh, Well, end of history. Uh, yeah. You know. <laughs> the most obvious point um, is the sort of refugee issue and the ways in which declining population growth interact with that. And in some ways it points to sort of two dueling impulses you would expect and which one dominates in this film. And frankly, which one might be dominating in real life too. A sort of rational political economy approach would say that if if you're in a society that has low numbers of births and sort of low you know supplies of labor, you should welcome refugees as a source of sort of demographic vitality. And that's in fact what you would recommend as a sort of policy response to most of the developed world right now, because in most of the developed world, families are having babies at a much lower than replacement population rate. I would also add this has always been the United States' demographic advantage. Actually, if you take a look at live births, the U.S., it's been for the last six years sort of falling off a cliff. But the U.S. is in relatively decent demographic shape because we continue to have an influx of immigrants despite what has happened over the last five years. Nonetheless, an approach grounded in sort of ethno-nationalism or identity politics leads to a very different conclusion, which is that refugees threaten to alter the national character. As you have more people coming from outside of what you would define as as your soil, they will look different, they will talk different. It is not a coincidence that Key is African, and this has some profound implications potentially for British society. And so I think in both the film and unfortunately in real life, it seems like the sort of nationalist backlash to declining population is what winds up triumphing. You know, Dan, I actually will quote from my notes now, which say, ask Dan, (laughs) with population dropping, why the extreme measures with refugees? Question mark. Just pure racism? Question mark. And I thank you. <laughs> I hope I hope I asked and answered is by the, the you know the, you have you have cleared that up. Okay, good. I don't know why it was a question for me. Although actually, I was I, no, I actually genuinely was thinking about it because like this is a movie about fewer and fewer people being in the world, and the irrational response to it. Yeah, you know, like none of the reactions to this tragedy really make sense. <sighs> okay, I get. I don't want to say it's irrational. It is a rational response if you are so anxious about your identity right. that, that this is what you will do. Right. Yeah. Because I, I, I say more right now. I feel like I want to make the distinction, though, that maybe this is just like a I have, you know, fundamentally different view of like what is a good idea. And, 
Because to me, you know, a, a, a looming tragedy should not necessarily make everyone terrible to each other. And yet, Anna. Uh, <laughs> yes, I know. I have. I have. I, I am actually a history major, so. Yeah. <laughs> but let me put it this way: you, you, are, you are correct that there is a different world in which you could make the logical argument of, "Hey, we have fewer people that are being born. If we want to be able to sustain our older population, if we want to be able to have." you know, uh, a growing economy, we should admit more people. And if we want to be able to have an economy, yes, almost, it seems exactly. like. If we want to be able to, like, have a life that's not... Right. I mean, they, you know, life in 2027, you know, uh, London looks pretty fucking grim well, that's for the, everyone. I will say this. This was the funny thing. Like, watching, re- rereading the reviews of the film, they all argue, you know, Great Britain is the only country left standing. Everywhere else is chaos. And on the second watch, I thought, no, that's bullshit. You are all yeah. believing what the fascist broadcast within the film yeah. is saying. I was actually no. going to say, like, I, I think there's a lot off screen intentionally kind of gestured at. Yeah. Like, it's not yeah. only Britain stands alone. A, I bet other places are not doing that. Like, I, you know, might actually have some degree of functionality. But more importantly, Britain is not doing well. Yeah, that's actually, that is the, that's the key. Yeah, like, literally even, a bomb goes off in two, you know, minute two of the film. Like, there are Yuji's all over the place. It, it's not good. That last yeah. battle scene is just amazing in terms of, like, showing the degree of carnage that is going on. Which actually... Oh, I, I actually remember I have something you, you've reminded me with the bombing and then also the last battle scene. I guess I'll just, you know, squeeze this, this thought in here. That the politics of the film are, I think rightfully confusing yeah there isn't a clear kind of like who's the like ideology who's good who's bad right there's like all kinds of like it seems like all kinds of factions like all kinds of interest like it's just it's chaos i have to say in in that sense the film's politics actually reminded me of blanking on the korean director's name bong jun so it reminded me of parasite a little bit or snowpiercer Uh where there's class in those films as well but also it's very Mm -hmm. clear that like the, the, those movies damn everyone, and I think the same thing is mostly true um, in this yeah. film. It, it's not clear the fishies are any better than than the fascists, except for the general idea of admitting the fugies in. There's a geostrategist named Ed Lutwak who argued that one of the effects of declining demographic growth would be that it would lead to a more peaceful world. That essentially, as you had more families with just one child, presumably those families would not want their child to go off to war. And that was the one thing that struck me sort of watching the film is that you would have assumed there would have been profound reluctance at actually using force because, again, you're killing people who literally can't be replaced. And uh, so I would have assumed fewer combat situations. You know, this sort of leads into another issue, Dan. Yes. Do, do you know what it is? Um, I can guess what it is. Does it start with a, a C or a K? <laughs> <laughs> Dan, would you like to know if there's a critique of capitalism in this movie? Anna, I would very much like to know if there is a critique of capitalism in this film. I believe there is. Oh, excellent. <laughs> How good. And I think it actually has to do a little bit with with what you were saying in this whole idea, like what's logical, what's rational, what's irrational response. If you value people primarily for their surplus labor, they become disposable in this way that if you value them for being humans, Mm -hmm. you would not treat them. And I think it says something about the logic of this movie and what this movie is trying to say, that there is this, to me, 
and I think too many illogical or unnecessarily cruel reaction that in the face of a mass shared tragedy that is about declining population, Mm -hmm. the response of fascist Britain is fuck everyone. Yes. And in a weird way, even though the refugees could provide labor, they're just seen as like refuse. They're not even they're not seen as people. Right. They're just like we want what what is ours. We don't want to share what is ours. Even this idea that there might be surplus somehow doesn't occur to people. I would also add one of the nice touches that Koran does is that if you look like and he, occasionally the camera does this, like you'll see like Theo walking past all these cages, you know, containing mm-hmm. refugees, and then the camera will go back to the refugees, as it were. This is going to sound weird, but like the first couple of fugies you hear say anything are white. Um, mm-hmm. And I actually thought that was important to say, look, this is not just a, you know, like global south versus global north thing. This is anyone coming into Great Britain is fucked um, if they're coming yeah. from outside. Yeah. Yeah, I had that thought, too, especially. Well, I, I guess I thought of it also as a, a matter of convenience, maybe. Of course, maybe it was saying trying to say something larger, but when they go into the refugee camp, mm. there was a part of me that was like, would this work? It only works <laughs> if there are white refugees, you know? Yeah, like, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Because Miriam and, and Theo are both white. That's correct. Obviously, the critique that this movie makes of sort of human nature is pretty uh, obvious. Yeah. But the parts of it that are kind of related to capitalism, I think, are kind of lower key. It is interesting to me that money still exists, but it seems like largely a barter economy, you know? Yeah. Like, I feel like... Well, it seems like... I was about to talk to an economist about how, like, money is working in this. <laughs> I, I, think, I think the answer is, is that money still matters in this economy, but also, presumably, in this sort of state where it's... Uh, the state plays a much greater role. Like, you mm-hmm. need transit papers to be able to go yeah. from point A to point B. That automatically makes it almost a little more like Soviet style or any 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 economy where the state plays that large of a role, barter will also start to come in because one of the things you can pay for is government favors. Yeah. That well that's but that's like when they offer, you know, uh, Theo all this money, there was a part of me that was like, he needs the money. What would he like <laughs> What does he need the money for exactly? <laughs> what does yes. he need the money for? Yeah, that was actually just booze. I mean I guess, you know, like Maybe he like I, maybe there was another gambling gambling problem that we didn't know about. But yes, yeah, that's right. Fair. Yeah. Okay. Well, we've actually talked about the themes, Mm -hmm. of course, already. But I I know you and I both drew some more specific ideas out of the movie. Dan, would you like to talk about a a theme that stood out to you? (laughs) The the one theme I would like to talk about that we haven't talked about so far is is the question of hearing, which pops into the film. And it it leads to an interesting sort of uh, exchange between Theo and Julian. You know that ringing in your ears? That e. That's the sound of the ear cells dying, like their swan song. Once it's gone, you'll never hear that frequency again. A lot of this film is right on the nose, and I, I, it's very clear what the message is, is trying to say in this film. But basically, the idea that without children, people will start losing registers of feeling that are associated mm-hmm. with them. That was entirely believable. And again, I think also matches well with again everyone's reaction when they actually see a baby for the first time which is what all these people like are suddenly stunned because it's an actual baby and this sort of register of feeling that almost returns to them at least temporarily until the battle goes again so i i did like the idea that that one of the one of the subtler effects of this it's not just people go mad obviously they also lose their senses in some ways literally because they don't remember what it's like to have small children around my theme is very much related to that Dan. <laughs> it's sort of a 
more inclusive theme. It's almost too big an idea to be a mere theme, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. Mm -hmm. And it is the corrosive effects of nihilism. What keeps you going? You know what it is, Theo? I just don't think about it. Even if they discovered the cure for infertility, it doesn't matter. Too late. World went to shit. You know what? It was too late before the infertility thing happened, for fuck's sake. She thought it could be peaceful! But how can it be peaceful when they try and take away your dignity? I think this is related to your theme in that, you know, what happens when you have this nihilism creep into a culture at this level, mm-hmm. it causes all kinds of feelings to go away. Yeah. Like, you start to lose your vision of the past. Like, there's, a, you know, Theo saying it was, it, the world was shit already. Like I, I'm not sure if that's true. Like I think I think of that as like no, I'm serious. Like I th- no no wait Dan okay. no, it couldn't have been as bad. Right. There is no fucking way it was as bad. Right. But I'm going right? to point out that Quaron, at least Quaron might think that because it, as you pointed out, like when we first see, for example, Jasper, like you know, like the sort, and we see like headlines. He sort of starts with a rock and then goes forward. From Actually, I didn't point that out yet. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. All right, what do you want me to do? Okay. No, I, I think just agree with you should agree with me. Okay. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, because also Theo had a life that was a mm-hmm. good life, right? Yes. So no, that's fair. He did. He had a great life. He had a, he had a, a life where he had a beautiful wife and a, a meaning yeah. and a child. And so yes. I think when he says the world was shit already, it's this way in which when we are, it's like anti-nostalgia, which I think does happen. Like yeah. When you're in a terrible, terrible place. And this is true of like people with depression. You can't remember hmm. what it was like to be happy. Your view hmm. of your own past has a pall on it. And I think that's something that's, that's, that's gestured at here. Um, mm-hmm. I think the line about how can we do this peacefully if they won't let us, if they, when they take away our dignity is truish on its face, but also there's sort of like a lack of imagination present there. It's that this is shit. Everything's going to be shit. Hmm. Like we have no choices you know, this is the violence is the only answer. And then the the I don't think about it as well is a kind of nihilism. Yeah. Like in a deadness, a, a, a numbness, a deadening of the senses, a deadening yeah. of the senses. And but the thing that really made me think of this and I had to kind of go back and hunt for some quotes to to use um, once I made this realization is in that final battle scene, there mm. comes a point where someone dies like every second. Mm-hmm. It's again maybe something I didn't notice, you know, uh, consciously when I first saw it. But this viewing, I couldn't stop seeing it. Which is mm-hmm. literally in every every time the camera changes to like a, diff- a different part of the world, someone dies. Yeah. Like there's all this ra- random gunfire. There's all this bombs going off, and these b- extras. You just look in the back. They're like people that are barely in the frame. Die. Dying. And I think that he's just rubbing our face in how this world has come to not value any life. That because there is presumably going to be the end of life, because this we may be seeing the end of humanity for some reason, and I guess it depends (laughs) on your view of humanity, rather than coming to value the life that we have, people become dead to life's value until Whoa. you know true life 
is brought among them and there is this incredibly moving scene yeah. where they where they the battlefield quiets but then giving away perhaps Quran's worldview <laughs> yeah turns on a dime to get violent again so that was elegiac um. yeah. <laughs> well now Dan I, I and I, I now I, completely agree with you <laughs> <laughs> well now Dan I, 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 oh no did you hear that <laughs> yes we are entering the debris field um, would you like to uh, dip into anything that uh, we didn't mention already? Sure. Uh, one amusing thing I thought is that one of the ways that it's fascinating to think how the film ages and, and so forth. One of the ways that Theo tries to suggest that Jasper was wrong about the human project is to say, yeah, but you claim you saw a UFO, which is interesting given the sort of moment that UFOs are having right now. <laughs> In which it has suddenly become respectable, apparently, to say that UFOs are real, you know, and uh, we're awaiting a report from the Defense Department about what the government knows about UFOs. So that'll be interesting. We haven't talked about it yet, but there is a one of the things that uh, is in both, I think, the book and the movie is the idea of this drug quietus is what it's called. Um, and it's basically the logic of as society ages, again, dealing with the infirmed and the aged is a burden on society. And so the solution that the government has is you can just take this pill and kill yourself. And it is uh, you see ads for it in the background in a variety of, of shots in the film. And it's well done. I, I did like that actually I, yeah. I I did not get from what I saw that it was intended just for old people. <laughs> I think, let me put it this way, I don't think there is any way you can market that without it being for everyone, obviously, but yeah. I, the impression I got was that it was oh, clearly I, I, at least I thought it was just like everything sucks. The government's like, yep, you're right, sucks. Here. <laughs> um, let's All right, see. Oh, continue. Uh, Yes, I did like there was a very brief moment. And again, talking about talking about the politics of it, where Sid is trying to you know, say, OK, let's see your Fuji face. And like the point being that in order to look like refugees in this world, they had to look beaten down and sad, which was entirely, you know, again, on point. And then my last point is just simply there. In theory, this is a movie in which. Clive Owen and Julianne Moore were supposed to have been married 20 years ago. And you sort of see shots of them with their little child in the background. And again, great casting because Julianne Moore is fucking ageless. And so it was entirely believable that she would look the way she did 20 years ago in a shot they had clearly taken for the film. So, yeah, just pointing that out. Uh, Anna, what about you? Yeah, well, on the subject of, of stuff that you see in the background, there is Iraq war, you know, mm-hmm. memorabilia and references. I think not just in jasper's house actually it's all over jasper's house but i believe because i was looking for it this time for some reason it's also in some of the kind of flyer things you see earlier on Mm -hmm. clearly intentional and i was thinking (laughs) is it just because like that's supposed maybe like the most recent war um or and i think this is possible if you think about him getting the idea for the movie in Mm 9-11 it actually being made after the invasion of iraq right perhaps <laughs> i want to give him a little credit for maybe uh sensing the forever war like That's maybe possible. sensing that this is like not it rather than it just being the most recent war maybe if, it's a, if, a war that since then it's never stopped maybe i don't know if he could you know totally oh, comprehend the forever war but this idea that like he saw the invasion and was like we're just going to keep doing this it's going to keep doing wars for a fun exercise if you can watch the film um 
pause it during there's a brief moment where uh theo is is being interrogated by the fishies you see newspaper Mm -hmm. headlines plastered along pause and read the newspaper headlines because they're a lot of fun and by fun i mean scary as fuck but like it's basically like all the things that have happened since you know in the 20 years in the interim my favorites were the ones calling on on charles to resign as king I did really love the uh, dedication to continuity with Theo having only flip-flops to wear for most of the middle <laughs> section of the movie. <laughs> that, it, you know, it's actually becomes yeah. like he did, he becomes injured in part like because of yes. the flip-flops. And then I just will say again, Theo is a very, very lucky man. In, and again, like now I have to wonder it's intentional because one of the things I started thinking about, you know, after you get, you get the, you know, Madonna and child scene, mm-hmm. you know, walking through the battle and then you, you see them on this rowboat in intense fog. Yes. Is I was like, do they have a backup plan? <laughs> like, <laughs> I did wonder that as well because there is a brief beat where Theo is dead or is like unconscious, yeah. but I mean, he's dead. Yeah. The ship hasn't arrived yet and you're like, if that ship doesn't arrive, what exactly is going to happen now? Like, right, exactly. Yeah, and also, yeah. I was like, they don't have a, don't seem to have a compass on them, you know? <laughs> like, they're in a rowboat in this really intense fog. Like, one way to end the movie in really, really bleak way would be they just keep rowing. They're just rowing. <laughs> no, the, 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 the most impressive way would be the ship literally disappears, the boat, rowboat disappears into the fog. And we yeah, that's we what just, I mean. Yeah. Like, it's just like they're yeah. rowing, rowing, rowing. Yeah, yeah. So... You know, there is so much, not even like, you know, undercurrent, but like very overt uh, gestures to religion. Like, mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, maybe this is a movie that's about faith on some level. Diving into things, not knowing how they're going to turn out. Walking through danger and making it to the other side. I don't know. I'm. It's actually a less thought out idea than, <laughs> than the one about violence and nihilism. But... But it, I, I did think about it when every time uh, someone conveniently was shot while Theo was in danger. <laughs> yes. So, Dan. Well, another lighthearted romp. Yes. <laughs> yes. And you can't see us gesture, dear listeners, but we're both like flinging our arms open as if to embrace the world with the joyful thoughts that this movie has brought on. Really fun summer vacation viewing and reading we've done lately. If you would like to tell us that we've depressed you too much. Um, and want to scold us, maybe even, uh, you could join our AMA to do that. It is on June 5th at 11.30 in the morning, Eastern, 10.30 in the morning, Central. You have to be a patron uh, Mm -hmm. to do this, and you would become a patron at our Patreon page. Dan, I'm curious if you have any ideas that we could maybe throw back at people when they yell at us for being too depressing. Like what? So what would I, you suggest? Yes, I do. Like first of all, I want to make this a hot sci-fi summer. So like you know, I think we need to have some <laughs> some lighter uh, material. I, one possibility, which we've talked about before, is maybe doing Jupiter Ascending. Yeah. We could do Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I have to say, the thing that I kind of lean towards is I think we could do we could go to Star Trek. We could do both the Trouble with Tribbles. And the DS9 sort of retcon of the trouble with Tribbles. Ooh, I like that idea, Dan. I like it. We would also finally kind of have something to a bone to throw to the Trekkies. Yes, I mean we're going to get to Trek. It's not like we're we're not, we're not like both of us are fans of Trek. We're not we trying to ignore you, it. We have heard you, people who are yes. saying that we need to do Star Trek in some form. We have heard you, and yes, yes I love Star Trek. I am yeah, not same. the completest with it that I think many of our listeners are, but. Mm-hmm. 
that I like that. I like that, Dan. I like that idea. Okay. And I think w- moving forward, we probably should think a little harder about tonal variety. <laughs> <laughs> I, we will say in our defense, I think we chose the, th- this and then also the power and kindred in response to Starship Troopers. Yes, that's true. It is. It was like, how? what can, what can we do that's like not testosterone filled and, you right. know, like silly? Although, you know, Star Trek Ship Troopers also has its serious side. Uh, yeah, yeah. And we're open to suggestions. Yes. There was already a Jupiter Ascending watch party on the Discord. If those folks want to hear us talk about it now, <laughs> it's fresh on their minds. So maybe that would be fun. You have the advantage of me never having seen Jupiter oh, Ascending. Wow. So, like, it would be my first reaction to it. All right. I almost want to give it a vote, but maybe actually what we should just do is do both of them and be, be sure to divide up the next time we have yes, really exactly. grim shit on the schedule. Right. Throw one of those in. So I yes. want to thank Karen and Alwyn for uh, all they do to help put the show together. Uh, any money that you give us goes to Karen and to keeping Alwyn and Kibble. Mm-hmm. Now that we have over 100 patrons, we might someday also receive some money, but that's not why we do the show. No. We do it for love, everyone. <laughs> love and uplifting feelings, <laughs> clearly, you know. I think we need to wrap it up, Dan. We will keep thinking about our schedule. And until then, keep this channel open for more.